Exercise doesn't have to be painful. Your diet doesn't need to be bland and boring. It's time to have less pain and move more and learn how to be better to yourself. Welcome to Pain-Free Day with your host, Joshua Cohen. In this program, you'll learn the pain-free way to eat, the pain-free way to exercise, and the pain-free way to live a better life. Now, here's Joshua Cohen. Hello. Welcome back to Pain-Free Day. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Cohen. We have a great show for you here today. We're going to be with, uh, with Brett Jones. He is a certified athletic trainer and strength and conditioning, conditioning specialist. Um, let me see. He's based in Pittsburgh. Uh, he holds a Bachelor of Science in Sports Medicine from High Point University, has a Master's in Science and Rehabilitative Sciences from Clarion University, and he's a Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist uh, from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. I personally have been working with Brett Jones for almost 20 years, doing a lot of kettlebell work, strength and conditioning, balancing, flexibility. He's to call Brett, you know, it's Brett, you do so much more than just a traditional trainer. I love talking with you. I've been very much looking forward to, to having a conversation with you. How are you today? Uh, Josh, I'm doing great. Uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to be on the podcast and speak to you and your audience. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, so um, how did you end up? So why don't you tell us first, how did you get into exercise? How did you get into training? You know, you do a lot of, do a lot of work with kettlebells. How did you get into kettlebells? So the uh, long story of uh, how I got here kept medium. Uh, would go something along the lines of, you know, I had a, a wonderful example of getting into exercise via my father. Um, he quit smoking, gained some weight, started working out, uh, good gravy, 40-some-odd years ago. And um, that was just a wonderful example to me. And I was a wrestler in junior high and high school, and... Um, you know, my my dad uh, supported that, and we had uh, uh, a home gym that we trained at and uh, supported our our wrestling, and so that was kind of the beginning of of that. And then that my background in wrestling has actually led me towards athletic training. Uh, so my bachelor of science in sports medicine, athletic training, that was kind of the direction that that I went um, after my athletic career, and. Um, then continued on, as you said, got a master's, um, started work, actually met Gray Cook, uh, the inventor of the FMS, Functional Movement Systems, um, back in 95 and worked with him for a couple of years in, in my training room and, and at his clinics. And then uh, I went and ran a hospital fitness center for five years. And at that time, I had gotten interested in, in Pavel Satsulin's work, uh, just goes by Pavel for obvious reasons. And um, he had uh, put out a book on kettlebell training, and uh, I attended the second-ever certification that he taught in the U.S. in February of '02, and uh, then was invited to be a, uh, instruct with him starting in April of '03. So coming up on uh, 17 years of traveling and, and teaching with Pavel, and um, so that that's kind of the, the the quick version of of how I how I got here. But yeah, seventeen eighteen years ago, or eighteen plus years ago, when I started uh, swinging bells, it was certainly unique um, at the time. And um, 
was warned by multiple people that it was a fad, that this would go away, and you know, we're, we're still swinging 18 plus years later. Well, you know, so I must have started working with you shortly after you after you really got certified and trained in doing that. I think I started with you in 2003 or four when my friend Sean LaValley was saying, hey, you got to check this guy out. Kettlebells are really interesting. You know, and uh, they're not a fad. And, you know, kind of like what you said, I mean, they've been around for what, over 100 years in Russia. And, you know, I, I, part of what I really like about them is they work our flexibility, they work our balance, they work the full kinetic chain, as opposed to just like, you know, the saying is, you know, a bench press trains you just to be able to do a bench press, you know, but doing a Turkish get up, it's going to teach you how it's going to strengthen you for for being able to stand up, being able to move around. It has a lot of real world uh, applications. Definitely. And, you know, over the years, we've uh, continued to refine and develop the the teaching system and and what we do and models continue to research and, and innovate and uh, within our protocols and programming. And uh, it's been, uh, I think the Grateful Dead had a good song called uh, What a Long Strange Trip It's Been. And uh, uh-huh. I think that that's apropos for the, the, the journey that I've been on in the last uh, 18 years. So now some, you know, but kettlebells from, you know, from talking with you and from doing research on them, they're great for people who are advanced. But from what I'm seeing, it's like, you know, people who are beginners can start with kettlebells as well, or at least kind of get into it after a couple months of, you know, working with some traditional weights. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think actually I prefer to get people started with kettlebells, uh, a little combination of some body weight uh, sort of movements. And then very quickly progress into using the kettlebell to learn things like the get-up and uh, the kettlebell deadlift, which I think is one of the best ways to teach someone how to deadlift. Um, and we, we can get into the reasons for that. But uh, I have taken many people with uh, no exercise experience whatsoever and have them using a bell in some fashion in very quick order. And, oh, and I, I wanted to go back and add uh, the... The kettlebell, the the word "giria" uh, in in Russian. Of course, I'm I'm not pronouncing it the, to its best, but uh, that first appeared in the Russian dictionary in the 1600s. Oh wow! Okay, so you're talking about a system that's been around for hundreds of years. Yeah, the the tool has certainly been around for a long time, and um, when Pavel brought it over, his experiences and how they used it within the the Russian military and Spetsnaz. Um, informed a lot of uh, how he uh, initially taught it and uh, developed his hard style training method. And uh, like I said, we've continued to kind of develop and progress those uh, over the over the years. Well, one of the things that you said said to me a while ago that has stuck with me was that, you know, kettlebells are great for apartments because they're so small and you can do so many exercises with them. You don't need an entire weight set. You can really just have one or two bells and get a full workout from that. And I think especially now with everything going on with the coronavirus and people having to kind of lock themselves in, it's a great way to be able to keep yourself moving even in a very small space. 100%, and uh, I actually reposted on social media a a couple of articles that I'd written um, last year, actually, about this concept, and it's from the original book that Pavel wrote, uh, The Russian Kettlebell Challenge, and in there he describes these courage corners, 
as they were known within the Russian military. And so every base, and even on submarine, you had a courage corner. And the courage corner was where you went to, uh, well, we're going to use the term workout or practice. And so kettlebell training was very much uh, part and parcel of what they were doing and uh, how they were staying fit and uh, even within the Russian military at that time. And so that, that, that name of your courage corner uh, really stuck with me uh, over the years. And I, I wrote a couple articles about setting up your courage corner at home. And you're absolutely right. Um, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of ways that one or two kettlebells can provide uh, complete training uh, within your uh, yeah the apartment dwellers solution I believe is what I what I used to call it so it's uh, and it's like you said especially now you're locked down it's more important than ever to exercise and keep yourself fit and strong and with everything that's going on and restriction of uh, being able to move around freely so you know uh, setting up a courage corner at home having a couple bells makes a big difference. I completely agree with you. And along those lines, I was listening to Pavel talk uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said something that made a lot of sense in that the kettlebell swing, it's one of the few ballistic exercises you can do with weights, and it's cardiovascular. And so you can actually get a good cardiovascular workout from doing kettlebell swings. I loved it. I remember reading this a long time ago, but it cracked me up. Pavel was saying, you know, if you want to lose weight without the dishonor of diet or aerobics, try kettlebells. That just cracked me up. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about about that? Absolutely. Um, quickly to the ballistic nature of the exercise, um, we're gonna the a true ballistic uh, is something that gets some energy put towards it. That's the only energy it's going to get. And then it has to sustain itself on that energy. So shooting a gun or shooting a bullet is a ballistic. But if you have a missile that has continued thrust to its target, that's not ballistic. That's obviously it moves very fast, uh, but it's, it's not ballistic. So when we refer to the swing as a ballistic exercise, we're using this um, hip extension uh, into, to create energy it's all the energy we're going to give to the bell until it comes back down. We have this unique uh, overspeed or um, eccentric uh, that happens as we hike the bell back again, and that loads us for the next hip extension. And so that, that ability, and, and I mentioned previously in, in relation to getting somebody into the kettlebell deadlift, I can stand in a position where I'm over top of that bell, aligning my center of mass with that bell's center of mass. It's a, it's a really safe, great way to learn how to align your center of masses, how to get your lats involved, how to sync your breathing and your movement uh, and build towards that kettlebell swing, that ballistic exercise, where that unique loaded eccentric kicks in. Uh, We've joked for years that you, can only, you can't swing a barbell between your legs. Um, well, at least more than once. And so we, we, uh, that, that ability to have that loaded eccentric is, is unique and, and a very powerful tool. And so we can frame this kettlebell swing, this ballistic, as a power exercise. 
Um, so we're, we're training power, and that has many benefits. And then you look at the fact that the swing is a rhythmically repetitive uh, exercise. We're producing energy. We're hiking and having this eccentric and extending again, producing more energy. We're sinking our breath with that movement, and um, it just really has some um, far-reaching effects. Uh, we used to call them the what-the-heck effect. Uh, <laughs> people would start swinging a bell, and they weren't doing any of their other training, but they were PRing in their pull-ups, or they were PRing in their runs, or you know something of that nature. So it's, it, we came to term it the what-the-heck effect because people started getting better at things that they weren't actually training at that moment. It was just this carryover from this ballistic power exercise with this overspeed eccentric. That's pretty cool. That makes sense. Hey, and I wanted to kind of touch base a little bit about something that you had mentioned. You're talking about alignment. And one of the things that really that I loved, you know, with Gray Cook, with functional movement systems from what you've explained to me, and I don't know too much about it, but you kind of assess people before giving them exercises. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, functional movement screening, what it is, you know, who Gray Cook is? Um, I mean, that system, it just sounds fascinating. And I would assume that that's something that you want to do, kind of go through a little bit first before you get into weightlifting. Is that accurate? I think it is. Um, the, the functional movement screen is uh, seven different movements that just kind of give us a snapshot for how you're moving. And one of our first principles within uh, functional movement systems is we want to move well and then move often. And what we mean by move well is do you move well enough to adapt in a positive fashion to the exercise or stress that you're going to be undertaking? And I think we can all think back to maybe a time where we were gung-ho about getting out there and getting fit and, and uh, starting our exercise routine or whatever the case may be, and then having to stop because it didn't feel good. Um, and that you may not have been moving well enough to adapt in a positive fashion to the stress you were going to be placed under. And this isn't some elite Olympic-level, you know, movements uh barrage that we're looking for. Um, it's all about managing these minimums. Just be able to access these movement patterns, things like squatting, single leg stance, um, split stance. Um, can you uh, perform these reciprocal upper and lower body movements? Do you know how to tie yourself together from a uh, what we're going to call a little hardcore activation versus a more subtle, reactive core uh, situation. So we just look to see that you're not below those minimums. Uh, one, of, one of the things we've added recently is an ankle clearing uh, that we're about three research studies into validating uh, as a really field expedient way to look at ankle mobility. And ankle mobility has kind of risen to the top of the list as an injury risk and something that we want to... Um, we, life is better with ankles. <laughs> that, that door <laughs> well, 
you had said this to me a while ago and it made a lot of sense in that you guys start assessing the ankles because that's going to dictate how the rest of the body moves. And I've really seen that in my practice. And part of what I really love about that, all that, that concept is that, you know, from what I see, it's like, you know, people, so when we injure ourselves, muscles will, they'll get torn on a microscopic level. They'll go into this neurological pattern of spasm and inflammation. They're going to be tight. They're going to be weak. They're not going through their full ranges of motion. And you go to a physical therapist and if they're not very good, they'll say, hey, that area is weak. We need to strengthen it up. And the thing is, if you try and strengthen up an area that's injured, you just make it worse, you know, versus what you guys are doing. You're assessing for how is that area moving? Well, if it's not moving right, let's get it moving before we start over overloading it with any, you know, weightlifting exercises that potentially can just make that issue worse and drive it deeper into your system and make it harder to get worked out. Well, and, and for clarity, uh, within functional movement systems, we have two branches, uh, and we have a clinical model called the SFMA, the Selective Functional Movement Assessment, and that's a movement-based approach to looking and working uh, on people that are in pain. Uh, within the functional movement screen itself, if we find pain, we actually want to make an appropriate referral so that a clinician such as yourself can help us in working with that individual um, you know, while you're treating that and, and we're working together as a team, then I can, uh, I can perform conditioning or strength training or whatever the case may be on patterns and areas that are not going to challenge that painful area. And so it's just a, it's a nice integrated approach that uh, we, we keep some clear lines between the clinical and the non-clinical um, realms. That, that makes sense. And, you know, but then also you, you keep those clear lines, but you're kind of combining them as well. And everybody has to work together. And I've kind of found like, you know, in order to get somebody better, get somebody moving, get somebody past an injury and get them exercising and help stabilize it. It's almost kind of a team effort. And, you know, it's like one, it's very hard for just one person to take care of that themselves. You know, I always kind of. Find Absolutely. That. And so. Yeah, no, please go on. I'm sorry. You go on. Yeah. Well, and that, that that team approach. I mean, it's it's just huge. Um, we because you know more and more exercise is being recommended as something that is essential for dealing with so many of these. Uh, um, use the term lifestyle based uh, issues that we're running into, uh, but it's also recognized for things like pain, and um, you know we. It, just because you're hurt or just because you're, you've got something going on with your ankle doesn't mean you can't train. It just means you need to train wisely. And when the clinical and the fitness realms talk together and, and, and work together, the best things happen for the patient, for that client. And so it's, it's a, it is a really key aspect um, of, of success because that uh, work that's happening outside of the treatments can be a great part of accelerating that healing process and, and having that person uh, come out of that injury better off. 
I completely agree with that. And you hit on a really interesting topic and point that I really like is I always look at it as exercise more intelligently. Let's exercise harder versus just exercising harder. You know, um, Pavel was talking, I heard Pavel talking about it a little bit saying, you know, some of the strongest people, some of the strongest people out there are the ones who are very intelligent, who are documenting everything, looking at, okay, well, this worked, this didn't work. And I personally think, you know, as we age, our bodies shift and our bodies change. And, you know, we need to start looking at, okay, well, that exercise worked for me when I was younger, but it's not really working now. And let me try and shift how I'm exercising so I can keep exercising, but not injure myself, you know, and keep myself going. There's a scene in the Matrix, uh, and most questions in life can be answered either via the Matrix trilogy or the Godfather <laughs> trilogy, except not so much the third Godfather movie. Not not a whole lot of usable uh, information uh, from the third <laughs> Godfather movie, other yep. than when I, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Um, <laughs> that's about one of the only things you can draw from the third Godfather movie. But in, in the original Matrix movie... They've taken Neo out of the Matrix, uh, but then they drop him back in this computer program. And Morpheus says, you know, look, uh, your implants are gone, your hair's grown back, your clothes are now what you would have worn when you were in the Matrix. We refer to this as residual self-image. And the reality is most of us are walking around operating on residual self-image instead of an accurate current image of where we are. Um, we remember what we used to be able to do, so we go try to do that in, in some format without appreciating the years or challenges that we may have faced that have changed how we're moving and, and to your point, what our exercise selection should be. So again, it's a, a part of that FMS and laying down that baseline for how you're moving is getting that accurate current self-image not your residual self-image. And that can be a great way to get started on an exercise program. That makes so much sense. And then, you know, along those lines, I like uh, I look at it too. It's like, you know, just everybody's shaped a little bit differently and, ju- and that will dictate what exercises we can do and what exercises we can't do. And just because we're seeing somebody do these exercises and, hey, they're having great rea- responses to it, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to get great responses to it. I might be shaped differently. My body might react differently. Chemically, I might be set up a little differently. So I'm going to react differently on a few different levels to, you know, my good friend over there who's in great shape who's been, you know, good in, having good luck with this type of exercise. Absolutely. You know, as a, as a coach and, and somebody that's been in and around the fitness world for 25 plus years, um, you, you start to realize that you, you have these general blueprints for how you're going to coach or perform an exercise. And then that blueprint needs to be adapted to the individual that you're working with. And uh, so there's definitely tweaks and changes uh, to almost everything that we do based on the individual in front of us. Um, their hip mobility, their ankle mobility, their, their injury history, you know, all of those things factor into how I'm going to coach and what that exercise is going to look like in the end on that individual. 
And I think, too, it's really important for people to realize that, you know, it's hard to, unless you have somebody looking at you, it's very hard to assess yourself and assess how you are now versus how you were 10 years ago. Um, It's hard to just assess how you're moving, how you're feeling, whether you're doing an exercise right, whether you're having the right amount of strength. You know, um, it's very hard to assess ourselves. And that's why we say, oh, you know, I was able to do that 10 years ago. I should be able to do it now. I feel the same. You know, um, one of the things I'm thinking of, Brett, is that, you know, when one of the first times I worked with you and you had you had me go down into a full squat and I wasn't even able to do it. And you're like, yeah, that's, you know, if you want to have good hip mobility, you need to be able to do this or this is a sign of having good hip mobility. And I couldn't believe how tight my hips were and I couldn't even get into a full squat. You know, and I think a lot of people are walking around like that. I see it in my practice where people think that they're moving well and, you know, or they think they're doing great, but they have a lot of tight, irritated muscles that can be really affecting how they move. Definitely. And it, it's, it's interesting because we, uh, if we don't, I'm going to use the term, if we don't ask a lot of ourselves on a daily basis, then we think we're doing fine. But when we start asking more, um, so if I'm going to start squatting, but I haven't squatted in, in to your point in 10 years, um, that's going to be a challenge. And so when I'm just walking around at my baseline activity level or inactivity level, as the case may be, um, then I'm not asking a lot of my body. But as soon as I start taking on these higher levels of stress via exercise and in many different formats, that changes the landscape. You need to be able to, uh, you need to open up your buffer zone for what you're going to ask of your body and what it's able to give you. That makes total sense. And, you know, I kind of figure it's like we want to be ready for what I call extraordinary, you know, activities. But that's just something that you're not used to doing. If you're used to sitting in front of a computer, really, literally reaching behind you in the car can be an extraordinary activity. And that could be enough to injure yourself if things are so tight and irritated. I have a good friend who he runs marathons. He can run 26 miles, but he cannot step off to the side without throwing his back out. And I would I would argue that he's not in very good shape because he can't really navigate the real world very well. Well, we've created situations where we can build fitness, as Gray would put it. Uh, we can build fitness on top of dysfunction, and uh, it's it's a horrible gift that we've given ourselves is is this ability to to, to get fit but not really. Uh, be able to uh, own it in an authentic way. Um, our ability to navigate the world, to perform the physical labor and work that was necessary, uh, you know, from a sociological, uh, anthropological perspective, if you're not hunting and gathering for eight to ten hours a day, you're considered sedentary. Um, so we used to do, and it wasn't high-intensity work, but we would move a lot. And uh, there's a couple things that have popped up on my radar recently, and, and we'll just talk about one of them real quick, is uh, ischemia. And, you know, from a technical definition standpoint, that's a restriction of blood flow to an area either due to pressure or inactivity. Well, that restriction in activity, that reduction in blood flow, either due to pressure or not moving, can actually create some uh, heightened sensitivity uh, in the nerves. And so... And then when you look at it from a research perspective, you find a lot of information on ischemia or this blood flow restriction and how we know it affects the arteries and blood vessels. 
but you don't find a lot of information on, at least to my level of searching, um, you don't find a lot of information on how this ischemic reaction is influencing us on a daily basis. And I think a lot of the things that we start to accept as aging or we start to accept as that, oh, that's just the way it is now, is more than likely a long, prolonged ischemic reaction due to uh, our sedentary lifestyle, our sitting for the number of hours that we do. Uh, even, even sleeping is an ischemic activity. You're compressing your body against a, well, hopefully a comfortable mattress. Uh, <laughs> right. But you're hopefully doing <laughs> We had to fix that a couple years ago. Hey, uh, let me cut you off for one minute because we have to take a quick commercial break. But let's get right back into this after uh, after we take a break. I'm sorry to have to cut you off. No worries. So, yeah, cool. We'll take a quick commercial break and we'll be back in one minute to continue talking about ischemia, prolonged ischemia. This is a great topic. I want to get more into this and also exercising in pain. Thank you. We'll talk to you in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you in pain? Has your doctor told you that you need to start exercising, but you don't know where? Do you want to exercise, but you are in too much pain? Or you start a new exercise routine only to injure yourself and have to stop? How do you exercise when you are in pain? How do you exercise and eat to reduce pain and inflammation? Is your pain associated with what you eat? If you have any of these questions or are interested in any of the topics discussed on Dr. Joshua Cohen's show, then you'll want to check out CohenTriggerPoint.com. You'll find information on all of the topics covered on the show. The site features an extensive library of blogs covering most health topics. There's also an exercise and nutrition program that is designed to get you from not exercising at all to moving, exercising, and eating healthy in consistent ways that are easy on your body and wallet. Join the gentle revolution. Go easy on your body because the rest of the world won't be easy on you. Exercise smarter, not harder. Eat smarter. Don't follow fad diets. Exercise sustainably. Eat sustainably. Have a pain-free day. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Pain-Free Day with Joshua Cohen. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to josh at cohentriggerpoint.com. Now, back to Pain-Free Day. Welcome back to Pain-Free Day. I'm Dr. Joshua Cohen, and I'm here with my guest, Brett Jones. We were just talking about ischemia, prolonged ischemia, 
From, for those of you who don't know, ischemia is when blood flow is cut off to a muscle, cut off to an area. Um, the type of muscle work that I do, it is called ischemic compression because basically when I apply pressure, I cut off the blood supply and then when I release the pressure, it allows fresh blood to wash in, which helps wash away some of the inflammation. But I kind of joke that part of what I do is just squish fluids around and prevent them from accumulating from t- accumulating accumulating too much in one area. And for a long time, I felt that exercise, that's part of what we're doing with that, is preventing fluids from just accumulating too much in one area, helping them get to areas where they need to. And I was just fascinated, Brett, by how you were talking about how ischemia really affects, you know, different, you know, so many different things. And you feel it's part of what can affect aging overall i mean that's it makes a lot of sense to me can you elaborate a little bit sure uh i I think that uh there there is this i mean there's lots of different things that are happening within an area when you restrict blood flow to it uh there's there's kind of a hypoxic reaction uh, that's not getting enough oxygen and blood flow and so energy production is different and there's a lot of different things that are happening uh because of this restriction in in blood flow and, you know, we run into this ischemic reaction, whether it's sitting, uh, I think we were mentioning before the break, even sleeping, like even if you're on a comfortable mattress, you're compressing yourself against the mattress for at least eight hours. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of times where even when we're doing something as wonderful for ourselves as sleep is, we're still getting that compression, restriction of blood flow, things of that nature. And so exercise is a way to increase that blood flow, kind of fight off that effect of, uh, of, of that restriction. And, you know, I ran into this. I, I started kind of tracking my steps on my phone, and I was averaging under 2,000 steps a day. Uh, under five is, is sedentary. And so I was really sedentary. So one of my goals over the last couple of years has been to break this um, computer-based lifestyle that I've kind of fallen into and uh, definitely feel worlds better with getting that consistent activity in. And, and, you know, I was working out two, three days a week. I was still doing my training, but I was overall sedentary. And I think that's a bitter pill for people uh, when they start to realize that the, the three hours out of the 150-whatever hours of a week um, might not be winning the battle. That makes a lot of sense, you know, and I kind of look at it as if it could happen to you, it could happen to anybody, and you really know what you're doing. You know, you get all these people out there who, you know, it's like they work in front of a computer for eight hours a day, and they say, yeah, you know, I exercise, I like to walk during lunch, or I, you know, I take the stairs instead of the elevator, and that's great, but that doesn't take the place of, you know, exercising and moving. And one of the things I've been seeing, you know, it's, I love, I love history, kind of like you do. I love seeing how this stuff has been going on for years. And I was researching and kind of reading a little bit about how even back into the 1800s, the Sufis back in Eastern Europe, they, the whirling dervishes, they started whirling and twirling as a way to offset all of the to- all the many hours that they sent, uh, spent sitting studying scripture, you know, as a way to kind of activate that internal gyroscope to keep us moving, keep our bodies activated, you know, and plus I kind of look at it too. It's like the longer we sit, the just the tighter everything gets, the more irritated everything gets. So on and so on. I, I kind of look at it at this point. The less I can have my patients sit, the better off they will be. Um, I'd actually like to use this to transition a little bit more into, you know, um, how do you exercise in pain? If you're in pain, how do you work with people who are in pain? You know, um, let's let's transition into that a little bit. And that's part of why I like functional movement screening so much because it works with people who are in pain. So can you uh, talk a little bit about that, please? 
Absolutely. So if we're setting that movement baseline and we're working with somebody and we do find that they're in pain, we're going to work with that clinician to get that pain addressed, um, do, do that uh, diagnosis uh, and find out, give me a why, tell me what to avoid, tell me what you do want me to work on. So hopefully we've got that clinical and fitness world working together. Um, I didn't say you had to be pain-free to train. And so pain is a really interesting topic. And the research and, and our understanding of pain has developed so much over the last um, 10, 15 years in particular. And uh, we, were, we chatted before we did the podcast, and I was referencing this uh, Adrian Lau, uh, A-D-R-I-A-A-N-L-O-U-W, uh, who has some books and pamphlets out there on, you know, the uh, neuroscience of pain. And it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating topic. Um, and so, you know, as we understand pain better, uh, I myself have had to train around and train with different situations. Uh, unfortunately, I am not a garage kept single owner that was only driven to church. Um, I am a little bit of a high mileage, high mileage model that, uh, has, has some wear and tear on me. And, uh, I had, uh, injured my knee 15, uh, almost 16 years ago. And I ended up having to have it scoped, have a cartilage tear taken care of, meniscal tear, um, at the end of last year. And so what I started realizing during that year was I was losing power and velocity on my swing. And I was tracking this with an accelerometer called the push band. And so I started to recognize that I was losing power and velocity. So I switched my training away from this knee that was giving me some problems to work on my military press, my pull-up, and single-leg deadlifting. And single-leg deadlifting had me going into surgery with a strong leg instead of, you know, avoiding it and because it didn't hurt single-leg deadlifting. So, um, but then when I came back from the surgery, I wasn't ready to do a lot of lower body work. So my training became a little more body weight, um, a circuit of kind of push-ups, pull-ups, uh, a few different things that I was able to add to until I got back to, you know, swinging bells and, and doing the fun things that I, that I love, love to do. And so I think the first thing for people to realize when you're having pain, let's get that looked at. And it's unfortunate that people will access a healthcare provider and the advice will be, well, just don't do anything for six months. And that's not a great answer because there's yep. so many other things you can be doing. <laughs> and, and so we want to find those areas where we can have success and move forward. We don't want to train the pain. Um, so I'm, when I say you don't have to be pain-free to train, that doesn't mean we're just going in and you know, feels like somebody's sticking a knife in your shoulder when you lay down to do your bench press. Well, I'm going to recommend you not bench press uh, for right now. And there's probably a, you know, 10 other things we could be doing that would actually move you forward, help you with that situation, and not train that pain. And so having, A, that integrated approach where you've got a healthcare provider that's working with you and encouraging you to stay active, uh, but then making good exercise and movement selections um, like I said, I, I couldn't swing, which is a symmetrical stance uh, deadlift or hip hinge, but I could single leg deadlift, a slow motion uh, strength building activity that actually 
really improved my leg, and it was kind of one of those I wish I had a V8 moment. Um, millennials may have to look that up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as a, I wish I'd had a V8 moment where I'm like, why didn't I have any single leg work in my, in my program? And so getting back to that was, was eye-opening for me. And, um, you know, listening to your body, uh, and that's the other thing with the pain conversation is pain doesn't always equal tissue damage. In, in fact, pain is an, is an output, not an input. We tend to think that, you know, we, there's always tissue damage in, in relation to pain. That's not true. Um, uh, pain is this output uh, that the brain takes a lot of information and then decides we don't like that. <laughs> and it gives us this sensation we call pain. And so uh, recognizing that you know, some of these chronic situations, I, I have a, a scar tissue on my low back uh, from a previous uh, surgery back in 2003, which was related to a high school injury. Um, and, you know, I can get a flare-up of nerve pain. But I work very well around that and with that uh, because I understand that just because I'm having that sensation doesn't mean that there's um, necessarily continued damage. Uh, one of the things that will make my nerve pain flare up is uh, stress. <laughs> yep. That happens with so many people. Oh. Yeah, please go on. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I Just drawing that point home, and I, I think we can all... Uh, I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. And uh, I've, I took both strategies with my back. When I first had the scar tissue and nerve, nerve pain stuff crop up, I didn't do anything. Uh, and then when I had subsequent flare-ups, I would continue training. And I can tell you the continuing training model was vastly superior to the not training model. Uh, but I had to be smart about my exercise selection and allowing my body time to to recover and adapt. And for a regular person, that makes so much sense. And it really is applicable, very applicable for a regular person. And it's like, you know, Brett, you know what you're doing. So you're able to kind of, you're able to better assess, hey, you know, this is good for me. This is not good for me. But, you know, for a regular person, I think it's really important, the concept of, you know, decrease, and you were talking about this, decreased activity does not equal a decrease in pain. A lot of times you, you know, what I say to my patients, we want to get you moving, but moving in ways that don't hurt, you know, but if you have arthritis, if you have joint issues, you're going to have you're going to have some pain, and you know it might be an issue of you know what they say with arth- uh, traditional osteoarthritis is it's going to hurt to move, but it's going to hurt more hurt even more not to move. So you want to keep yourself moving in ways that hurt as little as possible, but you want to keep yourself moving. You know, one of the things that I've really I really like you know, and one of the things I teach in my class is that pain outlasts an initial. Uh, initial injury. You know, these injuries, they get neurologically wired into your system. It's the theory that my trigger point therapy is based on. And then you're left with these kind of neurological scars that make that area neurologically more susceptible to getting irritated, but then also structurally because the muscles have been torn on a microscopic level. So you get it kind of a couple different ways. So you just have to be more careful with that area. And I always like to say to people, it's like, if you have an exercise that you've been doing for a while and you can't do it, look for another one or talk to somebody. There's other exercises out there that you can do that just won't hurt you, but you still, but still will, like you're saying, train that area so you can keep moving. And like you said, moving is a lot better than not moving. 
hundred percent. And if if we start thinking of pain as like the and, and this is from uh, Adrian Lau, um, and if we if we think of that as an alarm system, and you and I are both old enough to remember the old car alarms, to where if somebody had the vibration <laughs> sensor set too sensitive, the wind blows, and everybody's car alarm is going off. And so if we look at that painful situation as something that changed the sensitivity on your alarm system, um, now it takes very little to have the alarm go off. So I need to progressively uh, rewire that situation and create a situation where I reset the alarm to the right setting. Because pain is useful. Pain is the signal that something's wrong. Um, I, I, in fact, there are, there's a specific medical condition where people do not feel pain and, and it can be uh, bad for them. It, it, it's, it's awful <laughs> because they can sustain these, uh, what would be a very small thing to deal with, like a blister that becomes a raging infection. And we see this in diabetics who have, uh, um, uh, radicular, uh, neuropathy. And, you know, they, they lose the sensation in the feet. They don't feel the injury. It becomes an infection. And now they got big problems because of their re- restriction in blood flow and feeling. And so pain is useful. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of cringe when the Advil commercial comes on and, and they say, oh, don't let pain stand in your way. But what if that pain is supposed to be standing in your way? <laughs> it's it's yep. a signal that something's going on. So, I was kind of saying, you know, yeah. how, how do we... Yeah, pain is your body's self-protective mechanism. I mean, really, it's there to tell you something's wrong. And that's a really accurate and really good way to put it. And that's, you know, just your system's a little too sensitive. You know, after you get it, get it tripped one or two times, it's going to get tripped a lot easier. It's like you see some... I see patients who are in multiple car accidents with multiple concussions. They, get, they can get a headache just from looking down for too long or smiling for too long. You know, it's amazing how sensitive those muscles get. But then if you go, if you, if I can go through the muscles, get things calmed down, get them exercising and stretching, you know, which hurts them, but they're decreasing the overall sensitivity, decreasing the overall reactivity of those muscles. They're able to function a lot better. They won't be pain free, but having a pain that's a two out of 10 is much better than a pain that's an eight out of 10. Well, and, and it's tough when, you, when you're in that clinical model and you're seeing, because you know, I, I know and respect your practice, and I know you're getting people that maybe haven't gotten help elsewhere. And so they're, they're definitely at that heightened sensitivity level and that you know, things haven't worked in the past, and now they're, they're, they're continuing to seek answers. And exercise has been one of those things that they'd love to get back to, but they, they continue to hurt. And making good exercise selections, uh, increasing blood flow, um, it, it, all of that stuff is just, it's part of the healing process. And the, the confidence building thing that you can tell people is tissues heal. But we heal. If we don't heal, it becomes a really big problem. So our body's pretty darn good at uh, knitting things back together and, and uh, tissues heal. Doesn't mean yes, the it- alarm got reset. Right, yeah, the tissue damage will go away, but the neurological wiring is still there, and it makes them more susceptible to these issues flaring up. You know, and so if you're listening out there and you have some of these issues and you've kept flaring up with physical therapists, you kept flaring up with trainers, you know, 
Next time you go to a trainer or physical therapist, ask them questions. Trust your instincts. If it seems like you're getting pushed too hard, chances you are, are you are. You might want to look for somebody who's special, who can work with the functional movement screening. You know, um, Brad, actually, how would somebody get in touch with you if they have any questions for you or questions about these? So uh, within uh, the Strong First world, um, that would be strongfirst.com. And we have a very active community forum where people can find me and, and ask questions, and I get on and answer questions. Uh, within Functional Movement Systems, it's functionalmovement.com. And we also have a forum that's for our certified members, but you can send contact emails through the, the Functional Movement uh, website. Um, so those are two really good ways to uh, get more information and be able to uh, ask questions. That's great. So, hey, so actually, what uh, what have you been up to? You know, are you uh, you teach a lot? You go around and you lecture. Have you been lecturing internationally lately? Have you been up to anything interesting? Uh, well, it's been uh, it's been a busy couple of years. We've got uh, taken on administrative roles uh, within both Strong First and FMS, and there's there's lots of work being done. Uh, Strong First very busy at the moment, and. Uh, Earlier this year, I was in I was in France uh, prior to the uh, coronavirus situation, and uh, teaching in France and and uh, have been a couple other spots. Uh, travels a little slower for the next few weeks, and then it'll kick up again uh, towards uh, later in the year. So always always something going on, and uh, always trying to keep the training going and having a little fun. I hear that, you know, and I kind of think that's so important is, you know, to practice what we preach. And, you know, if I'm advising patients to be exercising, I need to be doing it myself. You know, I know that you t- you do that as well. You know, one of the things that cracked me up that you were telling me a little while ago is in the past, you used to call your friends and say, hey, you know, how much have you lifted? But now it gets to the point where you're calling your friends and saying, hey, how are you feeling in the morning when you wake up? You know, it's kind of funny how things kind of shift around over time. Absolutely. You know, goals change and realities change. And uh, you start realizing that uh, feeling good feels good. And I want my training to have me feeling good. And so I still love training. I still push myself. I still uh, train what is, you know, heavy for me uh, when appropriate. And uh, I, I, I have fun training. I, I, I really enjoy it. And uh, my wife keeps saying, you know, you need a hobby. And I'm like, well, I've got one. (laughs) Enjoy working out. (laughs) I completely agree with you. And it's like I enjoy it. I enjoy seeing how my body feels. I enjoy seeing how I can move throughout the world. But also it's fun, too, to just try different exercises. You know, and trying different ones, it helps create increased neurological connections, helps stave off dementia and Alzheimer's, and it does so much good for us. One of the things that you and my fa- you and my father were into a little while ago that I've just recently gotten into are um, Indian clubs because, you know, I work with my shoulders a lot, so I want to try and work on different ways to help, you know, strengthen up my shoulders and keep them moving, keep them feeling good. Are you still doing any Indian clubs? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's moving meditation. It's fun. It's uh, coordination. I mean, my, my left arm used to be some residual appendage that I didn't really know what to do with. And uh, I've really gained coordination skill with my left side uh, via the Indian club training. And uh, it's a really neat uh, part of an exercise program. 
That's awesome. I'm glad to hear you do that. Yeah, just like I said, I'm just kind of getting into it as well. I really like how I'm feeling with it. You know, um, yeah, you know, and I've learned kettlebells from you, like I said, you know, back in 2003 or four, and I still do them, you know, a couple times a week at least because, you know, everything I've seen research-wise just reinforces that they're a great exercise. We really need to work on our flexibility. You know, I kind of joke with people. It's like you can be stronger as, as strong or fast as you'd like to be or, you know, but if you're not flexible, you really can't move, you know? I mean, it's a flex, you know, and that's part of what I like about kettlebells is they work your balance. They work your flexibility and it's kind of a key. You know, people get focused on strength, but we need to be able to move and need to be able to do other things besides just, you know, lift heavy weights or even just rather than just running long distances. Because at this point, cardio, it's like it doesn't do much to help stabilize your joints. You know, if you're in pain, you know, I kind of like to say, well, cardio will help you get from the first floor to the second floor a little quicker. But if you're in pain, it's not going to do anything to help stabilize that area or help prevent it from getting worse. Well, from a training standpoint, we always enjoy working on what we're good at, and uh-huh. we tend to avoid. <laughs> so it's, we we avoid the things that make us uncomfortable, or we avoid the things that we actually need to put a little more time, more attention towards. And we love hammering away at those strengths. And if we were, you know, forging a chain, and we were working on any link except the weakest link, we're not going to improve that chain. And so, you know, having that movement baseline, knowing where you need to make some improvements, knowing where you're going to do your work, uh, all of it comes together. And uh, you need to be strong. As the name Strong First would indicate, strength is the base for, uh, Metvia called it the uh, foundation for all the other physical qualities. But that all the other physical qualities are still in there. So it's not strong only, it's strong first. And you got to be able to move. And, you know, having good range of motion, good flexibility, good movement uh, quality, it opens up that buffer zone. You're able to handle what life throws at you because now your circle of control, your buffer zone has gotten bigger. And now you can move and do things and you can handle uh, what life throws at you. That, you know, and when stress comes along, you'll be able to handle it a little bit better. You'll be able to handle sitting in front of the computer for 12 hours when you have some big presentation that you have to do or something like that. It's just exact. I so agree with you in that, you know, the better functioning your body is, the better you'll be able to handle all the stresses that life throws at you that we all have to deal with. You know, and I kind of look at it too. It's like, you know, the rest of the world is hard enough on our body. When we're exercising, we don't want to be super hard on our body, you know? So, hey. It's yep. amazing how you can you, you can work with yourself in a very appropriate manner, and, and so I know I'll be back on eventually, and we can talk about recovery and proper programming. <laughs> that would be excellent. That would be excellent. So hey, uh, actually, we uh, we have to end. We're close. We're uh, ending our time together, Brett. I greatly appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, hopefully, all you listening out there have learned a little something, um, Brett. Hopefully, I'll have you on again, and. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, All of you, I hope you have a pain-free day. Thank you.